My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I don't know what just happened there. I feel like I just blanked on the name of my show. <laughs> That's absurd. That's absurd. As, uh, as uh, regular listeners know, I have been in the podcasting game for about a year and a half now, and I've gotten to know a lot of fellow podcasters. And today I have a cool podcaster who I have been paying attention to their show for a long time. This is the podcast called Hightailing Through History, and very similar to the format of this show. It's two sisters who present a fun or weird or crazy topic from history to each other, and both of them are under the influence of a certain substance. Uh, it's it's up to them, <laughs> it sounds like. But it, it sounds fun, and I, I just love finding all those little moments where the influence comes out. So anyway, <laughs> my friends and listeners, one of the hosts of Hightailing Through History, this is my guest today, Laurel Rockle. Hello, Laurel. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you for doing this show. I just... I got I to gotta ask you, because you've got quite a lively Instagram presence, and <laughs> I love getting in there every day because you're almost on the daily, just like, hey, let's drop a little, uh, a little fact bomb today. Uh, as of today's recording, your uh, story told that on this day in, I think it was 1965, there was a really fun little thing that happened in the world of music. What happened? So the FBI finally came out after a two-year investigation to say, we actually don't really know what the Kingsmen are saying in their song, Louie Louie. We've <laughs> slowed it down. We've sped it up. We have no idea. But it's, quote, unintelligible at any speed. Because what was happening is when the song came out in 1963, well, as you know of the song, it's so kind of garbled in its lyrics. <laughs> you can barely understand what they're saying. They're not exactly uh, erudite in their enunciation. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah, I can just see some mm -hmm. some guy in glasses going, we've got to get to the bottom of this. Yes, I don't, I don't <laughs> like this. I don't like what might be happening here. We got to go now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what had happened was this, I think it was, and no one knows exactly where it came from, but rumors started and it was such a juicy rumor as any sort of like sex sells. Right. You know? And so right, right. if there's the thought that there's 
sexually explicit lyrics or something kind of dirty about them that there's the outrage, especially from the parents. And so, (laughs) so people were mad and it got to the point where Robert F. Kennedy and J. Edgar Hoover had to start an investigation. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) That went on for two years. Like how much do you need to investigate on a song to be like, you know what? There's nothing here, but they took two years of time to interview people, listen to the song, all of it. That's absurd. I love it though, (laughs) because I mean, it's exactly that. When somebody in power stands up and they say, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. What probably happened is the the mediocre sales on that song skyrocketed. People are just like, oh, so so what are you saying? Like, it's, it's, it's too sexy. Like I shouldn't listen to this song. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. Three Sneakly, of them. Yeah. yeah. That's where you have guys in the trunks of their cars in the mall parking lot being like, yeah, I got a copy of Louis Louis. For it. <laughs> I got all the sizes here. Um, I don't know why you had that accent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that works. It works. It works. So as you can tell, my listeners, Laurel is uh, quite gifted at finding these little nuggets of history. And and that led you into creating your podcast with your sister, Katie. And you both are quite knowledgeable about history. But but how did this come about for you? How did how did you start podcasting? Well, I uh, I've listened to podcasts for, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years. And uh, yes, I know. I've uh, seen uh, my numbers in Illinois skyrocket. Thanks. Thank you for binging everything. But go ahead. Yes, I'm a voracious uh, consumer of podcasts and I love all different kinds. And um, I think what it's like one of those things where people go, yeah, I think I could do that. And not that I thought that people actually really wanted to hear what I had to say, but I really loved the idea of being able to present a different side of history in a different way. So many people are like, well, I don't really like history. That's boring. I hated that class or I always fell asleep in that class or, you know, whatever. It's usually negative. But I, I found that as an adult, <laughs> there are so many people that are like, whoa, like, no, I that, that part of history is so cool. Or I love that movie or, you know, like Bridgerton, Downton Abbey. Okay. These are all things mm-hmm. that are set you know, have a historical background that people love, you know, so just be able to explore history with in a different way. So I was like, let's just do this. <laughs> I've had some time on my hands. Yeah. Make it something accessible. Like that's, that's yeah. kind of what I've done here. I mean, like, like I said, you've, you've listened to all my shows at this point and, you know, you don't have to be a theater lover or a theater history wonk to really appreciate these stories. Like in our pre-show, you were talking about, you kind of grew up on the stage. You did some shows in high school and college. You did dance a little bit. And I can't remember if I sent it to you or somebody else. I said, Hey, look at my episode. 15 on the dancing plague of uh Strasbourg in the 1600s and <laughs> I'm like love See, that that's, episode right <laughs> that's one where you're just like oh that was something really strange that happened I can't believe that happened and you don't have to know anything about dance or medieval history you just go right. why did this go on yeah, and and, exactly. and so same with yours. I mean, uh, I think it was, what, a couple episodes ago, as of this recording, uh, Katie told this, the very lurid history of Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> right? How dark was that? Right? Right? And, uh, you Atomic know, I mean, bombs. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm I, my, my, my two sons, like Godzilla was part of their growing up. Oh, God. I remember one night, it was like a Saturday night, 
you know, he was the older brother, his little brother was just a baby. And so we put the baby to bed and, and uh, he was downstairs watching old black and white Godzilla movies and just cuddled up in blankets and just completely cozy in his little cocoon. And I said, Hey son, I got to run upstairs and I'll get something. He goes, okay, dad. And I'm like, okay, I'm leaving my kid with a Godzilla movie. He's four years old. I go up, (laughs) go up and get a glass of water or something. And I come back down and he is all tuckered out and completely sleeping. He fell asleep to a Godzilla movie. Oh, nugget. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm probably not going to share the lurid history of Godzilla with him just yet because to ruin anything yet for right, him with that right. well anyway speaking of ruining things <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and get into today's topic and i didn't give you too much of a clue and the clue that i gave you wait did i give you more than one i think i only gave you one you gave me one a very very good song yeah okay well, yes. it's, uh, uh the the song concrete and clay by the concrete band uh unit four plus two we're gonna be coming back to that okay. um uh, please, listeners, don't stop and go listen to that song. Wait until the episode is over, but we'll we'll get there. Okay. So um, I did ask you, Laurel, though, uh, I do like to start these with a question. And I don't know if... <laughs> oh, this was the other one I came up with. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you something to kind of chew on and, and help us out with. What I thought was, why don't I ask Laurel about a project that she might have done that she put a lot of thought and a lot of care and a lot of passion into? It didn't turn out too great. Mm-hmm. Did anything come up for you with that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, lay it on me. Yes, it did. Yeah. So I was in the health and wellness field for the last 15 or so years. Whoa. Okay. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's definitely a departure <laughs> for me <laughs> doing what I do now, yeah, right. um, you know, in the way that I do it versus being a nutrition coach, health coach, health coaches and like behavior, like behavior change stuff. Not just like, I don't know, there's a lot of shady health coach stuff. Yeah. Online. Yeah. Don't uh, watch your carbs <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah. Take this shake. Here's, yeah. here's this 48 hour juice fast and only eat and drink this for two, three days. Right. Uh, like I'm, yeah. I'm you're, you're pulling your face yeah. apart with your fingers. Right shit now. your pants for four days. And, <laughs> of course you're going to lose weight. It's all that water weight. Arr! Oh my that God. I did stuff. it. <laughs> just been shitting for four days i don't know i don't understand <laughs> so personal trainer performance coach all that stuff and i initially my my first job doing that was working for a doctor in town and they were they had like a wellness program along with like physical training and then at a certain point in time they're like you know we're going to close this down you know we have to kind of focus on one thing oh. which i'm like okay cool i respect that but shit now i'm out of a job and so one of my clients who is, he owns a marketing firm in Chicago. He's like, you know what, Laurel, like you're actually good with people. A lot of personal trainers are not very personable people sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and um, he's like, uh, you can coach you're, you know, you're, you can do something beyond this. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't really have that sort of thought outside the box of doing my own thing. So anyway, to get to the point of your question, I started my own business and it went for about six years, six of my 15 years that I've been training. Oh, and, that's a uh, good long time though. Yeah. Thank you. I, I feel like it's, it was pretty solid. It was a very small scale thing, like boutique training. I had a bunch of clients that followed me from places that I was working at and they, they're like, we'll follow you wherever you go, which is wonderful. Okay. So all that to say 2020 rolls around oh, God. and <laughs> 
and I was already at that point, like that 2019, I was already getting burned out with coaching. It's a very burnoutable job. I can see that. Okay. Okay. So I was like, you know, I love my, my people, my clients, the places I work, but I don't, I don't really feel like something felt inauthentic about it. Oh, like I had to like really try hard, like huge imposter syndrome all the time. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to close things down summer of 2020. And then COVID just kind of moved that deadline up by a couple of months, (laughs) but it was nice. I like, I, I've stopped, I've moved on to different, different things. And I started podcasting, um, with what little free time I I have, but I was like, you know what, (laughs) whatever I have left, is going to go into this passion project. So to answer your question, my passion project, what I thought it should be for 15 years. And then for the six that I actually did it and put the time and the marketing and the social media and, you know, really trying to create something that ended up kind of fizzling out, but I realized I didn't, I didn't have my heart in so much. Whereas Ah. now this new passion project, which is the podcasting has, I've never felt more like myself. And so that told me that like, this is more the thing than that. You know, that's actually, that's actually a wonderful story. That's a wonderful story. I can 100% relate to that. Okay. I'm glad we talked about that because that is a wonderful personal revelation story. That's not going to happen with anything we're going to listen to today. (laughs) So, all right. Without further ado, let's get going. Let's do it. Oh, wait. I actually wanted to say one more thing about this. You might have kind of a special connection to a lot of the story because your husband is British. Mm -hmm. Is this correct? Christian? This is true. Yeah. So he's from north of London. Okay. Okay. And I I remember, I think I've seen it on your Instagram. You have spent some significant time in London. Yes. Love Hmm. that city. One of my favorite places in all the world. And so I'm glad that Mm -hmm. we get to travel there tonight. It sounds like. Uh, You ever been to any shows on the West End? No, I have been Mm. in the West End, but not. You've been there. You've been, you've been adjacent. (laughs) Been there. I've been West End adjacent. Oh, so like when I talked about uh, on my episode 13, William Terrace, you were like, oh yes, I have seen at least that street and been around there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I think you're awesome. talking about Covent it's Garden or, or that area, right? Yes. And so I was yes. like, yep. Mm-hmm, the, and that, I was kind of mapping it out in my <gasps> head. I love so that great. I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on London's West End at the Duchess Theater, as of today's recording, the play that goes wrong, that's the title of a show, has been running since it opened on September 14th, 2014, before running in some smaller markets. This has been the longest running production ever at the Duchess Theater since the venue opened in 1929. So we're like looking at eight years here, minus two with COVID going on. And um, I understand, you know, West End right now is really tricky to get back going back again, but they're trying. The plot of the play that goes wrong is more or less a play within a play centering around a theater group who have seen a string of successes and are set to perform a 1920s murder mystery. And, as wicked playwrights are wont to do, (laughs) (laughs) these characters have all manners of mishaps occur. Props malfunction, set pieces break, people forget lines, actors break character. It's just a mess, and it's all written into the show. Okay? (laughs) One of those great ones where you're like, you're watching a dumpster fire start from a spark and go until it's full on. Yeah. Full flaming glory. All right. (laughs) It's just a mess. And it's one that an audience can have a damn good time laughing at. (laughs) 
Now, <laughs> the play that goes wrong also played Broadway at the Lyceum Theater. It opened in April 2nd, 2017, ran for 745 performances before closing January 6, 2019. So, pretty successful show. But back to the Duchess in London. And somewhat ironic, we're talking about such a success. While the Duchess has had other successes in its long history, it also has one other infamous line in its list of historic events. It was the house that presented the shortest run of a production in West End history. <laughs> Just if it's not one, it's going to be the other. Yeah. And we're like, you know what? Hard. And <laughs> we're going to be extreme. I don't care which way it goes. All right. Now, I don't have a lot of info on this because the, the, the records that were kept uh, from then were kind of spotty and difficult to find on the Internet. Hard to believe. March 11th, which is my son's birthday. March 11th, 1930, a play called The Intimate Review opened and closed on the same night. Stop it. So, even <laughs> for my listeners, hands just went in the air, jaws dropped. Get out of here. This is going to happen a lot tonight, I promise. Yeah, this is nuts. So, when I was listening to one of your, another one of your episodes, I'm not, I'm not even sure what it was about, but the question did pop into my head was I was like, I wonder if there's a show that they opened it and within either one show or the two showings, like within that day, they're like, yeah, no, we're done with this. And I've, I was wondering that. And so I'm so glad we get to find this out. <laughs> it, it, to be honest, it happens quite a lot. I mean, really? like if, if you look up any of the theaters on Broadway, like if you go to IBDB, you can look at the theater specifically and see the list of shows that have ever been there. And one thing I actually had to take out of this episode was the history of the Longacre Theater. It just hasn't had the luck of some of its other neighbors, you know? I mean, across the street from it, Hades Town is still going on. But I, I had to take it out because it just had, had no success, almost no successes. It did have some successes. I shouldn't say that. Anyway, but yeah, yeah. To answer your question, yes, a lot of shows have opened and closed relatively quickly. In fact... It's my understanding that in London, like the general contract is you have to give your cast and crew a two week notice that a show is going to close. So they'll at least get paid for two more weeks, regardless. Well, that's good. At I least. Can't I, mean. I, can't, uh, I can't remember which show it is, but we're going to be talking about one that broke that rule. Now, I can't even tell you what the intimate review was about or even who wrote it. And, and based on the time that it was produced, it's very possible that this was just a review show, which was generally featured something of a variety of song and dance numbers. It could have just been like, you know, a, 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 a collected vaudeville kind of thing. What I know is that the reviews say that it looked completely under rehearsed and just thoroughly a big waste of everyone's time. <laughs> what the hell even is this? What am I watching? <laughs> Upon closing, oh, no. the producers announced that they would take it back to studio for rehearsing and open again <laughs> on March 30th, but it closed two weeks later. And actually, some of the sources that I found suggested that it didn't close after the show ended, that it closed at intermission. <gasps> oh, so some folks just paid their ticket and they're like, well, I guess uh, I don't find out how this ends. This is horseshit. Bye. <laughs> So here's, here's a review from the first run. That's nuts. The Daily Herald theater critic wrote that, quote, 
If a show is not slick and spectacular, then it must be witty and ingenious. Unfortunately, the intimate review fell into neither category. Mm. Oh, ouch. And, you know, you have listened to some of my episodes before, so you understand that there is a beautiful art in writing a bad review. (laughs) And boy, are we going to hear some tonight, because what we're going to be talking about tonight, Laurel, are colossal flops in commercial theater history. Oh, dear. (laughs) I can't like I'm like, oh, dear. I'm so sad for them, but also give me more. Let's (laughs) let's hear it. And this is why I I, I asked you the question that I asked you, you know, the the thing about big commercial theater is it's such a big business venture. Like it's such a big undertaking that anybody involved does not believe that it's going to fail. Right. They have enough faith in it that they're like, this is going to happen. You know, I've had him on the, on the show a few times. My friend, Richard Jordan, who's a producer in London says, Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at it in the in the long history of shows, everybody is thinking they're going to have another Cats. Right. Because <laughs> when, when it was first presented, and I'm not talking about the movie that just recently came out because uh, that missed a lot of targets. Right, right, yeah. But, <laughs> but when it first premiered, uh, you know, in late 70s, early 80s, everybody's like, so what's this a show about? It's a show about Cats, and it's based on a T.S. Eliot poem. And what happens in the show? But for some reason it struck a chord mm-hmm. and it it hit what people were needing right then. And so everybody just started going, oh my God, well, my show that is a huge pitch could be the next Cats. So <laughs> keeping that in mind, Bless them. <laughs> let's hear about some times when this misguided faith didn't really pay off. <laughs> I'm going to go back a couple years in history uh, from the Intimate Review to 1927. We're going to talk about a Noel Coward play. Oh, okay. And the play is called Sirocco, okay? Like the term for a hot desert Mediterranean wind, a Sirocco. Oh, that's what yeah. I was feeling. Like I yeah, felt right? that that was what that word meant. <laughs> right, like I'm, I'm smelling incense and I'm hearing the pipes of yeah. snake charmers. And yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So- Soraka was kind of unusual for Noel Coward in 1927. He was 26 at the time and like was already this huge star. So especially in this point in his career, it was very rare that he would have a total dud. Now, he wrote this play about, called Sirocco, and it followed the womanizing exploits of something of an Italian Lothario who um, beat up on his girlfriends when they didn't agree with him. Oh, no. I was sitting there yeah. thinking, like, is this like a knockoff Casanova or something? But, uh, yeah, that was like, oh, wait, we just took a oh, turn. Wait, oh, wait, wait. Well, Ooh. no, I mean, eh, I mean, you know, I'm sure behind closed doors, Indiana Jones got a little fisty. <laughs> possibly. Yeah, possibly. Now, Noel Coward begged his friend, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm going to say it. Ivor. I-V-O-R, Ivor, maybe, I don't know, Ivor Novello to play the lead. And at this time, he was the biggest British star of silent film, okay? And he and Noel Coward were super good buddies. Ivor refused again and again, stating he wasn't right for the part, okay? So as I'm stating it, I'm saying this character, this, this, the, the lead is, and as I pictured him, it's like a a Marlon Brando. And and heck, I just said it, Indiana Jones, kind of like a Harrison Ford type of role, like a, you know, kind of muscular man. Ivor Novello was kind of like the equivalent of today's Sean Hayes. 
<laughs> kind of like a like wonderful. Okay, no, 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 no. I'll great, say However, Noel, Noel Coward is like the Sean Hayes. Uh, Ivor Novello was like a Nathan Lane. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Pretty. Yeah. Pretty. Uh, you know, out with their personality. Pretty flamboyant. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Ivor, I guess, refused again and again and again. And Noel Coward kept giving him offer after offer. And Ivor just said, no, it's not going to work. I'm not right for the part. Finally, Noel Coward goes, oh, fine. I'll do it myself. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And Ivor went, fuck. Okay, fine. I'll do it. So he succumbed and signed on to play the part. And when rehearsal started- He kind of secretly wanted to do it a little bit. Do you think maybe like a little bit inside? He was like, it'd be really cool if I could be my own main character. Yeah. Or was he like, oh shit, I have to do this now. Well, he did (laughs) as soon as rehearsals started because he, exactly what he was predicting was coming to pass. Like the woman who played the lead uh, or his, his female lead, Frances Doble, she was a cute little, you know, ingenue type. And, and I think it was kind of designed to not be so much of a Noel Coward comedy, but a little bit more serious fare. But he's looking at it and he's going, me, I'm not intimidating to this other person. And I think people are going to pick up on that. (laughs) Well, opening night, the crowd actually began heckling the actors on stage just as Ivor had predicted. And it just escalated the more and more the show went on. Oh, no. A lot of people left. But those who stayed just enjoyed jeering at the stage as things escalated. Oh, no. I just, because I'm, I have such a bad anxiety about weird things. And oh god, and just hearing somebody, or hearing that somebody is getting heckled or jeered at, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, no. Mm. <laughs> I feel so bad. Like, like, oh, no, don't do that. They're, they're putting them, or like, if people don't oh, clap at the end of a show or something because it's <laughs> not good, I'm still like... Yeah. You did your best. You got, you got up there and you put yourself out there. <laughs> anyway, it might be maybe a little bit, uh, now that I'm hearing it out loud, I don't know if that's uh-huh. like condescending at all. No, 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 no. Okay. That's perfect. That's perfect. Because they worked. They worked hard. They worked. They put the time yeah. in. At curtain call, the leading lady was crying because people were throwing their programs and ice cream cartons up on the stage oh. at them. But she had rehearsed a speech to say, with tears streaming down her face and her mascara getting all garbled and makeup, and she goes, this is the greatest evening of my life. Oh, girl. <laughs> now, Noel Coward, Noel Coward, playwright, is in the wings, and thinking he, just with his fame alone, can calm this all down, takes his author's curtain call, walks out, presents himself to the audience. They booed even louder. At which point he reaches back and grabs the hand of Frances Doble, the leading lady, who's still a a pile of tears, and brings her forward and tries to give her another bow. Somebody from the crowd is like, yeah, that's right. Hiding behind a woman, are you? This is the Murphy's Law of evenings for these people. Oh, God. Oh, Oh, Laurel, we haven't even got started. Uh, director, (laughs) Director Basil Dean was at dinner during the performance, knowing that it was going to be a disaster. He finished Mm. dinner and he returns to the theater in time for the curtain call. As he's approaching, he was pretty notorious for being hard of hearing. Didn't really hear what was going on, but heard a ruckus. And so he just assumed that they were cheering. Oh, dear. (laughs) Just... This is just a casserole of, for fuck's sake, (laughs) just baked together. (laughs) 
Ivor Novello was doubled over with laughter in the wings, having predicted all of this. And Novello and Coward never worked together again. And today, the term Sirocco is the adjective amongst theater fans to describe a dud on the West End. So people are like, oh, did you see the play last night? Uh, Sirocco, my friend, I'm sorry. Writes that in her little book of Cockney (laughs) rhyming slang and like British uh, (laughs) slang terms. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to do that one. Yeah, I like that. So that's the term on the West End. Would you like to know the term on Broadway? Sure would. <laughs> sure, sure would. I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, tell me. <laughs> What's it going to be? The term is moose murders. <laughs> oh, oh my so, God. so I'm guessing this has got to be the name of the play that does that's not do so great. That's moose the name of the play, murders. Moose Murders. Yep. Okay. Oh, we're going to go is... see Moose Murders this Saturday. Yeah, moose we've got really murders. great tickets for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like... mm-hmm. February 22nd, 1983. Mm-hmm. And and I, I most of this uh, for, for my episode comes from a great article that Mental Floss did on this. So I'm going to give them credits right now that, man, they did a great chronicling of it. So playwright Arthur Bicknell wanted to write something of a parody of closed room murder dramas, you know, where it's like, all right, nobody leave the room. Okay. Mm. So it wasn't so much that, but it's like kind of an isolated location. All right. The play takes place in a lodge in the Adirondack mountains, which has been purchased by a wealthy family, a place where the aging and invalid patriarch can spend the rest of his days. And on why Arthur Bicknell called this farce that he, he believed he wrote a farce, why he called it Moose Murders, here's his quote. Everything up there is called moose, and that's where the title came from. I wanted to write a farce, and moose is a funny word. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean. Moose Lake, Moose Cave, Moose Peak. Moose Knuckle. Whoa. Yeah, no, sorry. (laughs) Well, now we've got an E rating. Cool. There you go. (laughs) Just had to keep that going for you. Or you can just edit that out but um yeah i that, i don't understand why that yeah that's good just yeah murders yeah, moose, moose okay. murders so here's the official plot and like i said it's a 1920s murder farce so very in the vein of like the clue movie right mm-hmm. okay funny as heck and all kinds of people are getting killed there's you know a lot of danger one of the people here could be the murderer all right here we go the wealthy heirs of a wealthy but ailing old man named Sidney Holloway have purchased the Wild Moose Lodge in the Adirondacks as a place for daddy to live out his last days. During an innocuous game of, air quotes, murder, suggested by one of the clan, mousy young Lorraine Holloway is murdered for real. <laughs> Who done it? Could it have been the legendary, air quotes, butcher moose, which haunts the mountains? Or is it a member or members of the eccentric Holloway family itself. Before dawn breaks, there are a series of disclosures which lead to the murder of more than one of the cast of loonies, as well as to the awful truth behind the moose murders. Sorry, I just had to like take inventory of what my face is doing right now. Um, I Wow, I mean like, it does. It sounds like Clue on the stage. Yeah, it, it sounds silly. Like, okay, I'm so we're taking, we're taking a bunch of eccentric, wealthy characters and we're putting them in a hunting lodge, mm-hmm. okay? Essentially in the middle of the woods where they don't know how to do anything because they're city folk. All right, that sounds fun. I, I, I am hung up a little bit, which I think was the, the reason for the face. Is, did you say a moose butcher? Butcher moose. 
Butcher moose. Actually, uh huh, uh huh. And I'm not sure exactly what that means because it could be a killer. It could be an actual moose that's killing people, and we'll see okay. why in just a moment. Okay. Now, while in development, like we just said, everyone initially thought it was kind of funny, especially a wealthy Texas oil man who ate it up with a spoon and offered to fund the whole thing. Here, take my money. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Now, herein lies a particularly interesting thing about Broadway investors and why they fund projects. When you have more money than God, what is the one thing you can't buy? So that's why a lot of these guys go, I could get a Tony or an Oscar or a Grammy by putting money in this project and getting a titled credit. Oh, wow. And then they can show all their friends, look. I funded this show and I have the Tony on my mantle to prove it. Can you just, can you just do it for the sake of the art? Maybe. <laughs> oh man, that's a whole other conversation. And unfortunately, oh, no, wow. it's so okay. tricky. Like I had a very long discussion about this the other night and it, yeah, the whole idea of doing a show just for art's sake anymore is almost not even a thing. There is yeah. Laurel. There is this thing called SPH. And it is something that when investors and producers are sitting down and going, okay, I kind of like this project. I'd really like to see where it goes. Some investors and producers go, well, what's the SPH? Standing for spend per head. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So I, I might go buy a ticket to Broadway. Cool. Okay. Where am I going to sit? Because there are some investors and producers who will map out the house and they will decide, okay, the person in the balcony on the floor is probably going to buy a couple t-shirts at the gift shop. They're going to buy a drink in the lobby. They're also going to buy a playbill and, uh, you know, uh, a commemorative cup. Yes. Yeah. That's, that, that's spend per head in a nutshell. Okay? okay. So you do have a lot of investors who are going like, well, what are people going to put down on this? I mean, I'll be honest. When I went to see King Kong, which was also kind of a dud. I put down $100 on a hoodie and a t-shirt, and I think I have, yeah, oh, dang it, uh, a plushie that was over here, and I still have my commemorative <laughs> cup, too. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, it makes perfect business sense, but it's just like, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I guess I have to think, like, realistically. Yeah, if I yeah. was putting X amount of dollars into it, you'd want to know what you're getting back, sure. So here's a quote from the uh, Mental Floss article. <laughs> the foreshadowing of a historic failure coming down the pipe came soon after the play was greenlit. The play's director, first-time director, John Roach, cast his wife, Lily Robertson, as Lorraine Holloway, oldest of the Holloway children. Robertson created the part herself, and to this day, it remains her only Broadway credit. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel, get the feeling she probably didn't even act like she wasn't even an actor to begin with. He's like, yeah, you'll do. Hop on in there. Sweetheart. Now check this out. Uh, Paired up against Oscar nominee Eve Arden. <laughs> Eve Arden was using moose murders as her return to Broadway after a 42-year absence from the Great White Way while she made movies and other things. Oh, Eve. She left after the first preview due to, air quotes, artistic differences. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. Now, some reports say that she was given artistic license to change her lines at will, whereas others say she couldn't remember the lines to begin with. Oh. <laughs> now, yeah, Arden, okay. 
Arden was replaced by Holland Taylor. Now she's done a lot of stuff. She's, uh, I think she was on The Practice and uh, uh, Two and a Half Men. Uh, a lot of people know her now as the partner of Sarah Paulson. I, yes, I think I've yeah. seen her. Yes, okay. okay, I'm just trying to get that now, in there. Holland Taylor loved the show when she read it, but didn't have a lot of faith that it would last very long. She thought it was pretty over the top, and you'll see why in a moment, but she was kind of in debt and took the job for a paycheck. Here's some account from Miss Taylor about her experience with the production. <laughs> Quote, one night the play closes on a blackout laugh line, which is my line. One night I said the line, it got its fairly weak response and the lights did not go out. Oh. And the curtain did not come down. And that was the end of the play. The others on stage all started scattering like rats on a ship. And I said, come back here and made them all come back. And we stood in a line, took hands and bowed. And I said, that is the end of the play. <laughs> Let me announce it for you now. That was the end. You may clap if you feel like that's something you wanted. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. No pressure. No pressure. I'll just... Oh, no. I'll be honest. That's happened to shows I've directed where like it, the play is left fairly open ended and people don't realize that it's over. And yeah. they're like, whoa, that was it. Oh, my God. And then they start clapping. <laughs> OK, here we go. <laughs> After 13 preview performances, Moose Murders opened on February 22nd, 1983 and closed on the same night. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, no. <laughs> New York Times critic Frank Rich, known well for his well-written and entertaining reviews of awful plays, wrote one hell of a review for this show. <sighs> Here are some of the best zingers. Oh, my God. <clears throat> From now on, there will always be two groups of theater goers in the world. Those who have seen Moose Murders and those who have not. The set represents a lodge in the Adirondacks and is profusely decorated with the requisite stuffed moose heads. Though the heads may be hunting trophies, one cannot rule out the possibility that these particular moose committed suicide shortly after being shown the script that trades on their good name. <laughs> oh, this man, he is like Shakespeare. <laughs> Here's a great long one that tells a little bit of the plot. Uh, I didn't really just, you know, I told the plot, but this is kind of his version of the plot. The wealthy Hedda Holloway arrives with her husband, Sidney, a heavily bandaged quadriplegic who is confined to a wheelchair and who is accurately described as, quote, that fetid roll of gauze. Sydney's assistant, Nurse Dagmar, wears revealing black satin, barks in Nazi ease, and likes to leave her patient in the room. The Holloway children include Stinky, a drug-crazed hippie who wants to sleep with his mother. <laughs> I'm going to stop and let you catch your breath there a little bit. <laughs> what the actual fuck is happening? Oh, my uh -huh, gosh. Uh -huh. Okay. And it also Ooh, includes... It also includes Gay, a little girl in a party dress. Told that her father will always be, quote, a vegetable, Gay turns up her nose and replies, quote, like a lima bean? Gross me out. She then breaks into a tap dance. Stop. Oh, stop. Da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> ha! Dazzle-dazzle. Oh Whoa. God. 
Oh, there are a couple more here. Like um, a lima bean with the valley girl, you grow sort of thing at the end going on. Like, oh my God. Paradiddle, 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 tap, clap. Okay. <laughs> I bet there's more children in this horde of insanity. Uh, oh. Well, yeah, there, there are several children in the Holloway family, but I've lost count. Uh, here's, a couple, <laughs> here's a couple more quotes from Frank Rich. For much of act one, this ensemble stumbles about mumbling dialogue that, as far as one can tell, is only improved by its inaudibility. <laughs> so not only were the lines <laughs> shit, but thank God we couldn't hear them. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's right. I'm a bit flabbergasted by that. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and, and here's the last one. Here's the last one. Even Act One of Moose Murders is inadequate preparation for the ludicrous depths of Act Two. I won't soon forget the spectacle of watching the mummified Sydney rise from his wheelchair to kick an intruder, unaccountably dressed in a moose costume, in the groin. I mean, chef's kiss. Mwah. That is perfection of shit. Mwah. Beautiful. That review is oh brilliant. It's, I love that. Yeah. I love him. I guess they have a whole book of his reviews. I so want to buy it now. I don't know where I found it, but I think at one time, Holland Taylor uh, alluded to the fact that during one of the preview performances, they went to a curtain call met with absolute silence. <laughs> like the crowd just sat there and stared at them. Those that remained. Um. <laughs> And uh, so I guess um, Moose Murders has been restaged a few times to completely poor reviews and awful audience response. In 2008, <laughs> it was launched as something of a performance art piece with very little acclaim. Like they tried to, they tried to they do, tried to the, do like, room the room. The room, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. yeah, that's and, what I was feeling. I was like, it's quirky. It's fun. It's like a little cult classic. You're like, no, yeah. no, this, no. No, <laughs> no, this is awful. In 2013... Moose Murders playwright Arthur Bicknell published a memoir titled Moose Murdered or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love My Broadway Bomb. (laughs) And rip off other titles of things. Uh Uh Oh, no. Oh, Arthur. To this day, it's basically the industry standard to judge Broadway flops. Basically, if a show flops, it's like, yeah, that one bombed, but it's no moose murders. Oh, also writing that one down in my little. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, here, here's, here's, here's a great murders. quote. Okay. Here's a quote from Bicknell closer to today. There is such a thin line between fame and infamy, and I'm almost proud of my infamy. So many people know moose murders. I did that. I wrote the worst play that was ever on Broadway. That's something. End quote. You know what? There's something to be said, I guess. I, I'm trying to like look at this as positively as I can for <laughs> Daryl Arthur. But to, you know, to take ownership and be like, it was shit. And you know what? I did that shit, but it was the worst shit. It was the number one of shit. And therefore. <laughs> <laughs> Yay me. I mean, Yay that's me. A, Yay that's me. A, that's, that's, <laughs> you know, it, it's nowhere close. It's nowhere close, but that's almost a little bit like Hitler is saying, like, you got to admit, I stirred some shit up. Yeah, I did some things. <laughs> I did like, some things. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> so, think? 
Woo. Oh. How you doing so far, Laurel? It's great. Like I. Oh. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad say, you're like, still. I broke a sweat. I'm. It's great. I'm, I'm, I, it's I'm glad. Wonderful. I'm glad you're still positive because uh, we're going to go ahead and take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we're going to hear some of the most colossal flops to ever hit the West End, and they are truly gorgeous in how catastrophic they really were. We so, haven't even gotten to the the, the championship yet. <laughs> oh no! Oh God, no! Oh Laurel, I told you this goes deep, girl. Oh my God! So. Uh, my friends and listeners, we'll be right back in just a moment and continue after that. Oh, Hamlet's father's ghost, my friends and listeners. Isn't this fascinating? So much failure. We've had so much failure on Broadway. But, you know, without those failures, we couldn't define the successes that we've come to enjoy. We have so much more content that Laurel and I had no idea this would be going on so long, but we had a fabulous time. So we are actually going to come back in a couple more weeks with part two of Colossal Flops. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be back in another couple weeks, but in the meantime, please feel free to write a review view, like, follow, share, subscribe, put this post on your social media. I love it. The more followers we get, the more we get to bring you more content. So from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, this is Aaron Odom signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. And in two weeks, I will see you at intermission.